All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. If you got your Bible, if you'll go ahead and it's David Weatherston every week. It's always David. What? I'm sorry, I apologize for interrupting you, David. My bad. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. And whereas last week we were looking at the whole chapter, this week we are going to be zooming in on specifically. Uh, what is typically called the parable of the prodigal son, although we're going to have a little different um, title for it in our in our message today. So Luke chapter 15. Verses 11 through 32. So Luke writes. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we we come to you, and as as we open your word and come to this this incredible passage of scripture, God, that has um, been a a teacher and a comfort to to your people um, for for all of the history of the church, God. Um, God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this specific passage. We ask that you would use it tonight, Lord, as you as you speak to us. Um, God, that in it we would understand you better, that we would understand ourselves better. Um, God, that these things would help us to understand those around us uh, better. God, we 
Uh, thank you for the ministry of your word, God, that goes forth in, in many ways all throughout our community, all throughout the week, but per- particularly, God, we continue to pray for your blessing on our community in terms of revival. We ask that each Sunday as your word goes forth in, in gospel believing, uh, Bible preaching, Christ-centered churches in our community, um, God, that the gospel would be, would be preached, that it would be heard and believed, God, that lives would be changed, and that the trajectory of, of people's eternity would be shifted um, away from, from hell and destruction and towards, uh, God, eternity, uh, the new heaven and the new earth, and most importantly, to be in uh, your presence for, for all of eternity. Um, God, that's what we pray for this community. Uh, we pray that for our state. We pray that for our country. God, we pray it for the world. God, we pray it for our own families. Help us to um, to be lights of the gospel um, as we go. Help us to share God's word um, with those who we encounter. We thank you, God. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, if you are here last week, we... we did the same parable last week. We added in the two smaller parables at the beginning of chapter 15. We talked about the parable, parable of the prodigal son last week also. We are going to talk about it again next week because as I shared with you, for me anyway, it is a central parable in my understanding of, of life and faith and the world and everything. And so... Um, because of that, we are going to kind of hit it from a couple of different angles. Um, I think there's a lot of explanatory truth in this uh, short section of Scripture, and, and we kind of touched on that idea briefly uh, last week. Last week, we talked about the concept of who the main character in the story is. That was sort of the, the question that we bounced off of um, to start uh, our investigation of the, of the passage. And we talked about the fact that it isn't actually the younger brother, um, even though history has kind of named the parable after him. And, and we also said that in a way, it isn't even the father who is the, the central character in the story, even though the father is the one that represents God in the passage. Um, but as we looked at not only the occasion of the parable, um, which was the fact that the Pharisees were resentful of the fact that Jesus was welcoming and receiving sinners, and as we looked at the surrounding context of the parable, which was the other parables, the parable of the lost uh, coin and the parable of the lost sheep, um, where in both of those stories, something was lost and then something was found and there was a celebration because of the fact that something had been found. We, we, we pointed to the idea that really the main character in the story is the older brother. The older brother is the center for the, of the story. He's the reason the story is even being told in the first place. And so I think that's accurate. I think in a general sense, looking at the parable, that the main point is aimed at the older brother and what we're supposed to to understand there. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing to be learned from the passage. And so we're going to hit it from a little different angle on in, in today's um, sermon. Um, and instead of asking who the main character is, like we did last week, what we're going to ask is, what could an alternative title be for this parable? There are several suggestions that, that you could find if you look through commentaries and, and, and studies on this section. We're going to talk about another suggestion next week in which the title could be given to this passage, not the prodigal son, but the prodigal God. And you might say, what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. Um, but I want to suggest to you right now a, a third title, not the prodigal son or the prodigal God, but maybe a better title for this passage is the parable of the two lost sons. All right, the parable of the two lost sons, okay? So before we jump into the text, let me be sort of uh, completely up front with you, okay? So when, when in preaching, um, probably many of you have never preached a sermon, and so you've never had to prepare a sermon that way. Maybe, maybe you prepared a lesson or, or something like that. Um, but it's an interesting thing of how it, it comes together. It is, um, it sort of comes together in this strange mixture of, of, of certainly study and of the text and of commentaries and what other people have said. It, it comes uh, in as a function of what other teachers have said about those passages and other sermons that have been preached on it. It comes through my reflection on the text and, and personal experience and prayerfully that the Holy Spirit is speaking um, and teaching me as I go through the text, right? 
Um, as I preach the message, it's focused on you guys in a unique way that it would not be focused on another congregation because you're my people and my flock, and I'm thinking of you in certain ways when I when I do when I preach a sermon. Um, don't get weirded out by that. That can be a little scary. You might be like, he's talking to me this week, right? Like all this message is about me. It's usually not that specific, but, but in general, I know your, your concerns and things going on in our church and stuff like that, right? So all that to say, man, the ideas and the illustrations and the focuses are sometimes kind of hard to trace in when I write a sermon, okay? That is not the case for this sermon or this passage, okay? I can tell you exactly where the ideas and everything else had basically come from. Last week's sermon was hugely influenced by a professor of mine in seminary named Bob Stein, who is a professor of hermeneutics at, at Southern Seminary. A whole lot of that sermon came from us studying that passage in his class. And so I can, I can tell you, I know where that, that stuff in my head came from because I remember it came from him. This week's sermon and next week's sermon come from Tim Keller. Okay. Um, they come from, um, pastor Tim Keller. He's a, he's a Presbyterian pastor in, in Manhattan, um, author, speaker. Um, he, he has a little book called the prodigal God, which is about this passage. It's really more, it, it's about the gospel is what it's about, but it's, it's about this passage in particular. Um, but I think most of you guys, if you've talked to me or known me for any amount of time, you know that, uh, I like, uh, Tim Keller a lot. Um, I appreciate his teaching. It has had a huge influence on me. He's not Jesus. He's not perfect. We disagree on things on a number of issues, and yet I think he has invaluable insights into the text and to, to human nature and different things that have helped me grow as a Christian. And so um, I can tell you that this the way I understand Luke chapter 15 is largely, mostly influenced by, by Tim Keller. His little book, The Prodigal God, is a book that we probably should have already read as a good little book study, but we just haven't gotten around to it yet. And so we probably will one day. I'll wait a few semesters till you kind of, this is settled and you've forgotten about it or something like that. So um, that way he can do it fresh and do it right. Uh, so I'll have to say pretty much nothing you hear tonight is mine uh, or unique or anything like that. Um, so anyway, the passage is, is I think the case, giving you that new title, the parable of the two lost sons. Okay. It is not a story of one lost son and one son who got mad, which is how we would probably normally read it, but it's about two sons who are both lost, but in different ways. And those two ways are in a broad sense, I think a paradigm for the way everybody's lost. We fall into, in some ways, these two categories, everybody in the world, for all of history, for all of time. Many cases, we fall into both of them in our own personal lives in some different ways. But you're going to kind of see how that plays out in just a second, okay? And so what we notice in the passage is these two brothers, and they're both lost. And what I want you to think of is the idea of saying what we see in the way these two brothers pursue life is two different ways of trying to find meaning, trying to find happiness, trying to make your life what you want to make your life, okay? That's what's going on. The younger lost brother has one way of doing that. We see that starting in verse 11. Actually, just go ahead and, and skip to verse 12. It says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there... He squandered his property in reckless living. Okay? Here's the deal. That first younger brother, he sees the way to happiness, the way to meaning, as something that we might say something like self-discovery, self-actualization. That's a very sort of, you know, psychological-sounding kind of thing, right? So his attitude in his head is that, man, freedom should be the center of, of the actions and choices that I make. I get to choose my own goals. I get to seek after my own, again, that self-actualization. I shouldn't be constrained by anything out there as I seek what I want most in life. Not external moral codes, not community standards, not sacred traditions. I should be able to live my life how I want to live my life. So my kids are in a play, or India is, a play of the Adams Family. 
the Adams Family, right? So you guys probably don't remember this because most of you are too young, but there was a movie of the Adams Family back in the 90s, and MC Hammer uh, did the soundtrack for it, okay? And he had this song, and there's a line from it. I know this is dumb, but it's like the, I was thinking about Adams Family this week, and it popped in my head. There was a song he did for it, and there's a line in it that goes like this. We do what we want to do. We say what we want to say. We live how we want to live. We play how we want to play. You remember that song? I hope you do. It's great. Um, it'll make, it'll make a lot more sense if you remember it. Otherwise, it's just sort of silly. Um, man, that's the attitude of the younger brother, right? I do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. I play how I want to play. There shouldn't be anything that holds me back because I'm trying to find out what's good for me. It's best for me. I'm focused on my own ideas of these things. Okay. That's a good description of the younger brother. Consequently, the younger brother is, is a, a younger brother type is typically kind of anti-authoritarian. They reject traditional authority. They reject hierarchy, whether that is God, society, family. They say, I'm the center of this thing, and I'm going to make decisions for my own life, and I'm going to make those decisions however I want to. Okay. Now, while there have always been people like this in the world, I feel like probably we are noticing it even more so in our current cultural moment. Okay. We are noticing a tendency for people to say, I am throwing off all norms, all traditions, all typical ways of doing things, and I'm seeking after my own vision of what the good life is. So obviously that applies to uh, the sexual revolution. Uh, the identity revolution that we're in the midst of when it comes to all those different issues. And those are obvious examples of it, but it spreads out way beyond that, okay, um, into all kinds of areas of society. Now, here's the deal. So that's one way of going about this. The older brother's behavior is seen to demonstrate a different perspective. And it's seen not only in what he says, but in his anger towards the way the younger brother acts. And so we see kind of a description of that in verse 28, says he was angry and refused to go into the party to celebrate his brother's return. His father comes out and entreats him to come in, but he answers, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your commandments. That is to say, I never did anything wrong. I did everything I was supposed to. And yet you never gave me anything, not a young goat to celebrate with my friends. However, when this son of yours, that's key language, when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when he comes back, you kill the fattened calf for him. You celebrate for him. So the older brother's view is, is in general the view of meaning and happiness that would be associated with traditional society. Okay? And, and it could be different traditional societies. It could be an East Asian view of society or a, or a Middle Eastern. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that it's, it's seeking after what is established and traditional. It sees moral conformity, obedience to community standards as the way to happiness. You want to be a good person? You want to get the most out of life? You want your life to mean something? then you need to follow the rules and you need to do what you're supposed to do in all of these categories. He says he never disobeyed his father in anything. He never frivolously or, or recklessly wasted his father's resources. And the reality is, is this, man, he resents that this stuff is being expended on the younger brother. The younger brother who's thrown everything away and yet now he's being celebrated for his return. This younger brother who is openly, flagrant, flagrantly rejected everything that the father loves and believes, and yet now he's being welcomed back. So you know what? The case is probably this, man. This guy's got a good job. He's a solid member of his community. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He gets up. He goes to work every day. He attends the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's respected in his community. He does everything that he's supposed to. And because of that, he has a certain sense of moral superiority that turns into anger when he sees those codes being broken. And moreover, it turns to disassociation from this son of yours, right? The people that he is supposed to be closest to in the world, he is separated from because of his outrage and his moral indignation. Now, here's the deal. I think those are the two paradigms of pretty much how everybody in the world lives. 
you pick one up, okay? Honestly, what happens is in different areas of our lives, we pick both in different ways. We'll talk about that in, in, in a second. But in general, you pick one or the other, man. And I'll tell you what, it wouldn't take long for us thinking about our families and our friends where you would probably agree with me, right? You would start looking through and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I got a cousin, and he is definitely the younger brother type. But then my brother, my older brother, he's he's definitely the older brother type or whatever, right? When we look at my family, man, it's a weird thing to say. I'm not trying to step on any toes, but I think it's obvious. I'm the older brother type in my family, and my brother is more of the younger brother type, okay? Um, now, the truth is, again, we have characteristics of both of those things, and we all do, but we'll talk about that in just a second. But I think people kind of generally fall into these categories. You might say, Ash is too simplistic. It's not big enough to encompass all the intricacies of human relationships and stuff. And the answer is you're right. It's not all explanatory, but man, it does a pretty good job of showing us a big picture of the problem. All right. Now, while these brothers have two, what seems like diametrically opposed views of the world at first, in many ways, they are actually very similar to each other as, as sort of an under the surface kind of way. There are ways that these two brothers are polar opposites but then another, in other ways, it's really just that they're the same side, I mean, a different side of the same coin, okay? And so, for example, one thing that we notice if we look closely at this passage is this. Both of these two guys seem to want their father's stuff more than they want the father himself. Both of these two people seem to care more about the father's possessions and his blessings than they do about being in relationship with the father himself. So here's one thing. In the Jewish culture, the, the way that inheritance worked was that the eldest son, uh, the, the estate would be split up from all uh, amongst all the sons. You would marry the daughters off, and the sons would get the estate. The oldest son would get a double portion of the estate. So in this case, since there are two sons, apparently, the older son is basically going to get two-thirds of the estate. The younger son is going to get one-third of the estate. But here's the problem. In this kind of time period, your money is not just like liquid. You don't just have it sitting in a bank or a, a treasure chest or something like that, right? It's in land. It's in flocks. It's in uh, valuable items and, and, and things like that, right? So to get the value to then give to this son who is demanding his share of the inheritance would have been a process. It would have been a process of embarrassment and dishonor in the community as this father goes and sells family land and possessions and people are like, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you getting rid of your stuff? Well, because my son doesn't want to have anything to do with me anymore. He wants to go off and take his money. And there would have been this whole process that would have been um, incredibly difficult on the father, right? There would have been an obvious um, um, embarrassment and obviously a, a heartache on the part of the father as he is trying to make this possible for the son. And yet he lets him do it anyway. Okay. It would not have been uncommon for somebody to ask this of their father and the father to say, you're disowned. Get out. You don't get anything. Um, I renounce you as my son, but that's not what the father does. The father says, if you want to go, I will allow you to go and I'll give you these things. But if we're observant, what we notice is the same thing is kind of true of the older brother as well. Because now think about this. As things stand, once the father has given his one-third to the younger son and he's gone off, what does that mean? That means if there's no other brothers, every single thing the father now has goes to the older brother, right? All of it. Everything he has. Everything that belongs to the father will go to the older son, which means... In a sense, when the father takes the fattened calf and has it slaughtered for the party, the older son is saying, that's not your calf. That's my calf. That's my calf that you are wasting on your son, not my brother, because I don't give a rip about that guy anymore. Not my brother, but your son. You are wasting my stuff on him. And think about this, and this could be a potential scenario that would happen. If the father, and there's even indication of it in, that we'll talk about next week, if the father readmits his son into the family, what that may entail is at his, the father's death, there is another splitting of the estate where the older son will get two and the younger son will get uh, one part, right? But guess what? If you do the math, 
What that ends up meaning is that the younger son in the end gets about 55% of the estate and the older son ends up getting about 45% of the estate. And so the older son who's supposed to get a double portion ends up getting less than the younger son. And he's like, I'm not having that. He doesn't deserve anything. I don't want him to have anything. I'm the one who's done everything right. I'm the one who has earned. And that's the key. I'm the one who has earned what my father is giving to me. And you're wasting what belongs to me on him. Except here's the problem. It doesn't belong to him. Right? The father isn't dead. The father can do whatever he wants to with whatever he has. And if he wants to spend it on the young, the younger son who's come back, he has the the right to do that. And yet the older son is already treating the father as if he was dead also. He's already treating him as if all that stuff is mine, belongs to me, and you shouldn't be using it unless I agree with the way you're using it. Okay? So that's the first thing. It seems like both the sons want their father dead and are mainly concerned with his stuff. Two, and this is sort of a general thing. It's not so much seen in the text, but I think it's true of the way um, our, our, these two things work out. Both of these people think the other person is what's wrong with the world. Okay? The younger brother thinks older brothers are what's wrong with the world. And younger bro- and older, whichever way. Older brothers think younger brothers are the problem. Younger brothers think older brothers are the problem, right? Older brothers look to the world and they say, you know what, if the world would be a great place if we could just, all these immoral people, these perverts and these deviants, people who are wasteful and dishonorable, if all these people would just get their lives together and act right, we would live in, in, in a paradise. Everything would be great. And you know what the younger brother does? He looks and he says, you know what, if we could get rid of all these closed-minded, uptight, repressed, bigoted kind of people, Man, the world would be a great place to live in, right? If we could just get rid of all these traditions and these stupid beliefs and these stupid standards, we could just all live free and it would be a better place. And you know what? The quicker all those things collapse, the better this world is going to be. So both of them are very similar because they think the other guy is the problem. You know, you know the story I love about G.K. Chesterton, who when the newspaper said, hey, smart people in the country, write me a letter about what's wrong with the country. And all the philosophers and economists and everybody wrote these huge letters to the editor. Charlton uh, Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor and said, Dear editor, I'm the problem. Signed, G.K. Chesterton, right? Because he recognized the problem is not out there. The problem with the world is in here, right? The problem with the world is in our own hearts. And both these brothers, even though they look like they're doing it in different ways, the problem is in their own hearts, Three, another thing that you notice, how they're more similar than different. Both of them, and again, this is not in the text, but it's something that we notice of these two types. Both of them are hypocrites. All right? Both brothers are hypocrites, and both brothers dabble in the thing that they say they hate. And so, for example, man, what have, how many times have we seen over, over the last few years specifically, but, but over the decades and whatever, how many times have we seen older brother types? pastors and politicians and, and people like that um, who are sitting there on their soapbox all day long preaching about decency and tradition and family values and all that stuff like that. And then what do you find out? Secretly, they're involved in some sort of illicit sexual behavior behind the scenes. They're doing something that's frowned upon by, by the community, um, but they're keeping it a secret. They don't want anybody to know about it, right? Um, they are living like younger brothers, but they don't want to know. They want everybody to know that they're living like younger brothers. They, they want to keep the, the, the image of older and live like a younger. But then the funny thing is, is this, you see the same thing functionally in younger brothers. Because for all of their supposed liberalism and acceptance and toleration, man, the closeness of, their, of his attitudes, particularly towards anybody that has an opposing view to his, is obvious. The, the, the condescension the self-righteousness of the younger brother is, 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 it'll outdo the Pharisees, right? We see that in our culture right now as, as you can't handle any kind of position that is different from yours. If somebody says that your lifestyle is, is wrong or illegitimate, then what is, you can't say that. You need to be shouted down. You need to be canceled. You need to be whatever. Because we can't handle, I'm, we're supposed to be open, supposed to be liberal. People can do it and believe whatever they want. Unless it's something that I don't like, and then we need to shut that thing down. 
Okay, and so we see that he is just as self righteous and and priggish as as his older brother is. But here's the fourth thing, and the fourth thing is maybe the most important thing is both of these brothers need to be reconciled with their father. That's the key. That's why we call them the two lost brothers. Both of them need to be reconciled to their father. One son has run away. The other son has stayed, but he's not connected to, um, he's not connected to his father. There's a, there's a great line that, that Keller mentions in a, in a, uh, Flannery O'Connor novel, and I can't even remember which one it is now, but he talks about the idea that there's a character who is self-righteous and priggish in the story, and it says, this character had learned that the best way to stay far from Jesus was to do everything that he told you to do. Now, that is a weird thing to say, and it takes a little digging in your head, but you recognize it's an older brother kind of mentality, okay? That you realize that I'll never have to engage with Jesus personally if I can just do everything he says and keep him at arm's length, okay? I used to do this forever with a boss I had, okay? I probably told you about this, this awful boss that I had, but you know what I recognized? Having this boss and his antagonistic behavior to me didn't make me want to, like, do things wrong to just, like, make him mad and disobey him. You know what it made me do? It made me want to do everything right all the time so that he would never notice me, never have to talk to me, never call me down, never do anything. And so I tried to do everything right and never had any interaction with him, okay? Older brother types do that all the time with God. They try to follow all the rules, keep the right image so that they never really have to do heart work with God. Both these guys need to be reconciled to the Father. But here's the deal. We notice, we see in the passage, and again, this is why the Father's, why the story is, I think, more about the issues that the, the older brother has. The younger son returns to the Father. We get to see his story play out and conclude. And I'll tell you what, it makes me think about um, it, it made me think about a, a, the illustration of addiction in this passage. So you know how an overdose works, right? So an overdose works where you keep on trying to seek the same level of high, but the problem is, is your body is built up a tolerance to the drug now. And so what ends up happening is finally you just take too much of the drug that your body can't handle and you end up dying and having an overdose and dying because you're seeking after this high that you just can't ever get to. You're seeking after this high um, and you never can get to it. But here's the thing. Sometimes this happens and, and, and um, you know people who have addiction stories like this. Sometimes they do something it's called they hit rock bottom. Right? We know that story, right? They hit rock bottom. And what that means is they come to a place in their life where they look up and they realize, man, everything's a mess. I can't get any lower. It's all gone to pot. I don't want to be here, right? I don't want to be on the bottom. I don't want to be in the pigsty with no food. I've got to make a change. I've got to start heading back the way I know I'm supposed to go. Because the reality is, is that's how living a younger brother life that's the outcome of it eventually, okay? Younger brother lifestyles are destructive. And we shouldn't pretend like even though these two brothers are, we're saying, ah, oh, they both are lost and stuff. There's a difference in their lostness, though. The younger brother's life is going to lead to his own destruction. The younger brother has broken his father's heart in this process, when you say to, as a younger brother to the community, I shouldn't have to obey your standards, man, we forget who that community is. That community is not some nebulous set of principles, man. That community is friends and family and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and mentors and pastors and church members. The person that you are rejecting when you live the younger brother lifestyle is all the people who are closest and most important to you in your life. We have this affirmation culture, especially in younger brother culture, right? And, the, and it says this, you have to affirm me. Whatever choice I make, everybody around me, if you love me, you will affirm and support the decision that I've made. You will ally with me, right? 
if you love me, you will approve of the decisions I've made. But here's the deal. It selfishly says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I don't care how you feel about it. And I don't really care what kind of carnage it causes in your lives or in my life or whatever else. I'm not interested in who it hurts or who it alienates. I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay. The younger brother's life is destructive. We're coming up on Halloween. I just finished reading, uh, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We read it for, for the homeschool class that, that we're in. And man, one of the coolest things about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is not the book itself, but reading about Mary Shelley and how her life influences the themes of the book. Okay. And she was a woman who was basically her whole life, um, at least her whole adult life at the mercy of godless men who kept on leading in her way in ways that kept on destroying her life in more and more ways, right? At 16, she marries this dude named Percy Shelley, who's an atheist. He's into free love and open marriage kind of idea, right? I, I want you to come along and be, be my girl, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stay faithful to you, Mary Shelley. And so they get, she gets pregnant. They go off to, to Europe. Um, he's gambling and drinking and, and womanizing and, and wasting their money so that they don't have good health conditions and good diet and things like that. So she loses the first child they have. She, he's encouraging her to have sexual relationships with his friends. Um, um, she gets pregnant again and loses another child and another child because they are in these terrible situations where they get sick. And what you see is this. You have this one character at the center of Percy B. Shelley who's saying, I'm just living my life. Free love, living my life, doing what I want to do, making the most of my life. But the reality is it is destroying everybody around him. Other people are suffering the consequence. And in fact, in the end, he suffers the consequence as well. But that's the life of the younger son. It's destructive. But here's the awesome thing about the life of the younger son. Sometimes you hit rock bottom. Okay, that sounds weird, but that's the good thing. Sometimes you hit rock bottom just like the younger son did. And when you do, you realize none of this stuff satisfies. None of this stuff actually makes me happy. None of this stuff, um, if I continue following it, it's going to lead to my destruction and, and to futility. Sad thing is, is not all younger sons hit rock bottom. Sometimes they die before they hit rock bottom. Or sometimes their descent is slow enough that they never really realize that, this, that they've wasted their life on these things. But this brother does. He realizes it. He comes to himself and he says, it says when he had spent everything and that severe famine came to the country and he was eating the, the pig slop um, or wishing he could eat the pig slop, he finally realized, why don't I just go home? Why don't I just go back to my father? My father has plenty for everybody. I'll just return to my father. The young brother realizes something. He realizes I got to repent and I got to return. And man, there is beauty and simplicity in that right there. The answer to your problem, the, the, the way to find happiness and meaning in this life is to just do two simple things. Repent and return to your father. Turn away from your sin and go back to God. The rejection of authority, the broken relationships, the out-of-control lifestyle, the pleasure, the recklessness, man, he turns away from all of it. And he says, I'm going to go home. And he returns to the father, and the father welcomes him back into the family. And we'll talk about that more next week as, as we sort of focus in on, on the character of the father in the story. But that brings us to sort of the cliffhanger of the story. Because both of these sons need to come back to the father, but we don't find out what happens with the older brother. The invitation is given to come into the party, but we don't find out whether or not he accepts it or not. He has to repent and return too. He must repent of his moralism, his self-righteousness. He must repent of believing that his obedience earns him God's favor, that it earns him what he wants, that by doing the right things and following all the rules that God is obligated, that the Father is obligated to do things the way he wants him to, he must repent and he must come into the Father. 
And so here again is the implication. The older brother is in a uniquely dangerous situation. Okay, The younger brother is in a dangerous situation too. And as weird as it is to say it though, the younger brother has the benefit of hitting rock bottom. He has the benefit that maybe one day he'll hit a place where he goes, none of this is worthwhile. The problem with the older brother, the rule follower, the self-righteous, the unmerciful older brother, is that you're never going to hit rock bottom a lot of times. In fact, you're going to live a life that seems pretty great. It's going to be a life full of stability and respectability, probably health, probably a good measure of happiness. You're not going to have all the crazy Jerry Springer kind of problems that the younger brother has. Doesn't mean everything's going to be good because we know many of us have had relationships that were broken because of the self-righteousness of an older brother type as much as a younger brother type. But the danger is, is that he'll never realize that he's lost at all. That's the danger of the older brother. That he will stand outside the party and he'll believe he's good and he'll be, believe he's in the right and he'll believe he's worthy and he will ignore God in the process and he will alienate all those people who don't attain to his standard. So here's the deal. I've watched a lot of, in ministry, especially in youth ministry, I've watched a lot of younger brother types walk away from the father. But here's one of the encouraging pieces of this story, is that for one, it's encouraging because when I read this story, I go, there's hope here, okay? Um, sometimes I'll talk to a, a, a mom or a dad and I'll say, man, my kid has, has gone off the rails. He's going in this direction. I don't know what to do. I can't stop him. He's turned 18. He's just living his own life. I don't know what to do. And, and sometimes there's nothing you can do. But, but, but I can at least give this word of encouragement is, and this is the kind of verbiage I use. I say, man, sometimes people just have to take the long way around. Sometimes people just have to figure that out in the long process. Man, I don't want anybody to have to go through that. I wish every one of us were non-self-righteous, non-moralistic, older brother types. I wish we all did what we were supposed to and were responsible and faithful, but not self-righteous and everybody just lived happy lives. But man, that doesn't seem to be the way everybody figures this thing out. Okay. That is not an excuse for younger brother behavior. That's not an encouragement to younger brother behavior, but it is to say, sometimes it seems like the only way people can figure out this life is to go down the younger brother path for a little while, but we can have hope to say, you know what I think may happen is that one of these days they're going to realize none of that fulfills and that they're going to make the turn and that they're going to come back home to the father. So it's an encouragement as I'm dealing with other people. Um, but man, it's an encouragement in my own heart as well. It says so much about the way I relate to things and the way I respond to things that I can look to this passage and when I've got beef in my heart about something, right? If I'm pushing back against something, I can pause for a second and say, man, am I responding to this thing because I'm acting like a younger brother? Or am I responding to this thing because I'm acting like an older brother? Because we all do that. We all respond in both of those ways depending on the context, the situation. I told you last week, man, I got a lot of self-righteous anger sometimes when it comes to dumb younger brothers who have walked away and done dumb things, Okay. I, I respond a lot of times the way that older brother does. I say, man, good riddance, okay? We don't need people like you around. That's wrong, okay? That is, that is uh, anti-Christic, okay? That is self-righteous. That's nonsense. That's not what we see in this passage. We see a father who is saying, I want both of you guys to repent. I want both of you guys to value me and knowing me more than you value any of this other stuff. All right. So what, what I want to do is again, we'll just go to the Lord in prayer for a time. Um, I hope maybe if you're in a situation where you've got a younger brother or an older brother you're worried about, um, that it gives you some hope. Okay. Um, I hope that it'll also be sort of a diagnostic tool in your own heart to think in these categories. Is it all explanatory? No, we're a lot more complicated than putting ourselves into 
just two categories. But man, big paradigm kind of categories can do a whole lot of explaining. Um, they can give us a whole lot of insight into these things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, I, I'll, I'll trust that you know how you need to pray and how you need to take go before the Lord um, with what's going on in your life. Uh, and then I'm going to have the worship team come back up and they'll close us in worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, whether that is the way of the younger son, of self-actualization, got a self-reliance, of rejection of tradition and authority, God, or whether that is the way of the older brother, the brother who's done everything he's supposed to, and yet has not focused his heart on what is most central and most important. God, we have all sinned in those ways. I pray that everyone in this room has done what we said as well, that they have repented and they have returned to the Father. God, that they have recognized their lostness, whether that was lostness to the younger or lostness to the older, whether it was lostness to the left or lostness to the right, lostness to the conservative or lostness to the liberal. God, that they have recognized their lostness. They have repented of it. They have turned from it. They have agreed with you and your word and your command on where they sit. They've walked away from that sin and they have turned back home. God, they have turned to the Father through the Son. And God, they are seeking after him and him alone. Father, I hope that is the case for all of us. It is, if it is not, I ask that you would work in our hearts. God, this is an easy room for, honestly, for, for either, either of those brothers to be a younger brother or an older brother type. But God, I ask that you would work in our hearts and that you would, God, that you would not leave us alone, that you would pester us with the realization that we must repent and we must return that you would pester us with those things until there is no other option, God, but to put down the bucket of pig slop, to put down our own grudges and self-righteousness, and to head to the party. Father, that's what we ask. I pray that for everyone here, God, and I pray that, uh, that that saving message of the gospel would go forth from this place. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
one of my favorite songs you know that every time we sing it like i just want to get up and just like go back and read through all the lyrics and quote them again let not conscience make you linger nor a fitness fondly dream all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him right that's the deal if you're an older brother or a younger brother and you think i'm gonna clean it up and get it right and then i'll come back to god if you think that one day you'll be fit and worthy of god then you're missing it. There's only two things you do. You repent, you acknowledge your sin, and you head towards the Father. That's what you do. Um, that's a good song. If I keep on talking, I'm going to get teary-eyed. Um, here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.